Exit for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. everybody welcome back to all new all different uncanny x's for podcasts the show where we take a look at the uncanny x-men comic book franchise as it continues its mighty 80s mutant expansion i'm your host nico and i'm kevo and we hope you survive the experience and you know speaking of surviving the experience we're about to talk about a guy who seems to die a lot in his comic for someone who is supposed to be britain's greatest hope he sure does fall down on the job a lot that means, of course, we are talking about Captain Britain, or as he has been reduced to, Captain Sidekick, Captain Backseat, Captain Sitting in the Passenger Seat, begging to stop and go to the bathroom. Captain Amnesiac, really. Captain, we have no idea what's going on or what he's been doing, except whining. It was a really weird time for the Captain, because he had been such a humongous expectation for Marvel and Marvel UK. There had been this feeling that Captain Britain was going to be like, the shit! And then he turned out to not do very well at all. And in fact, as I've mentioned a few times, a lot of these stories were never even released in America until this particular line of hardcovers, which at this point I believe may still be the only way to get them in the US. It's of note that this company, Panini Comics, still does some really beautiful and intricate pieces. They recently did a really special Daredevil Love and War, Frank Miller, Bill Sienkiewicz special edition book pressing. They're a cool company, and I just wanted to give them a major shout out. They're like the shout factory of comics. And now I want a panini. Mm. I do, in fact, understand that. You know who didn't get a panini for a really long time? Brian. And I know that's a weird segue, (laughs) but this story started to really stretch my believe factor pretty thin but before we talk about what we've been looking at and all of the weird ways we need to address the incredible pile of fucking retcons that we've been dealing with kevo i need to ask when i promised you we were going to be reading captain britain and you were going to get to know all about this character i loved so much did you expect to have to read all of this black knight no no i didn't When we first started discussing the Black Knight's involvement in Captain Britain's story last episode, most of my reactions were, who are you and why do I care? A lot of this episode is a condensed Campbell Soup version of the Black Knight's origin story that doesn't really clear up. A lot of those questions, unfortunately, this didn't make me like the Black Knight any more than I did last episode, unfortunately. And it's baffling to me because part of me is like, oh, well, it's the Black Knight's origin. But then I'm like, wait, if this is the Black Knight's origin, the way this is Captain Britain's origin, you very well could have subbed out any 10 minutes of Clockwork Orange and said it was also Captain Britain's origin because that is about how connected to actually what we read was. (laughs) 
today we're going to be taking a look at more of the incredible Hulk UK collection. We're going to be looking at Hulk UK 31 through 45, plus 47 and 48. For the most part, we're going to be taking a look at a weird collection of backup flashback origin. I, I'm not, I'm, I don't even know. The most baffling part of all of this is that the same handful of people worked on all of this, uh, Des Skins and John Stokes. However, they do credit the original writers like Claremont and Trimp, as well as Roy Thomas. But I just, you know, it's so strange because this came out October of 79 through January of 80. It really isn't that far removed from Captain Britain's actual origin. But I had to make a detailed annotated guide explaining just how weird this was. I think the one that Kevo and I walked away from the most ball-scratchingly confused was Captain America and Captain Britain's 12-part team-up is reduced to, like, a panel and a half, and the hawk is, like, three or four pages and used multiple times. It's, like, three panels, but that's no less insulting. Is it really 12 parts originally? Holy crap. Yeah, no, it's three panels to represent that 12 issue arc and like 18 panels of captain britain fighting that robot hawk like that was his greatest moment or something it definitely not just cherry picks the content but cherry picks how it handles the content in a really strange way it jumps from the hurricane to the hawk to the hurricane again and then we go to more of the hurricane and then it's like all the god war but minus Arthur, but definitely some of the Merlin stuff. And you're just, why? Why, 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 why? And you know, I actually forgot about a lot of the Merlin's trial of Captain Britain stuff because it was such a weird thing to do to his champion. And then I'd forgotten about all of like him having that fight with that evil Jawa. And what's more annoying is I feel like we're retreading so much of it in this arc. I don't feel like I have too much more to say about this other than it is a weird misrepresentation. No, I actually just thought of a huge thing I have to say. <laughs> Courtney Ross, Jack O'Tanner, Di Thomas, Jamie and Betsy, who really, the five of them are such major players in Claremont's version. And then I guess just Di Thomas in the next batch of writers. By the time Alan Moore comes in, Jamie and Betsy are going to be important again and a whole bunch of new characters. Courtney Ross is going to be important again when Claremont gets Cap back. It's this endless cycle of characters coming and going. It's strange that Captain Britain was first introduced in 1975, but doesn't really seem to find his identity until he's established as an American character in the pages of Excalibur. Until then, he sort of seems like a character searching for identity, even if he's a character with a home. That's something that a lot of characters can't speak to. A lot of characters move a little bit more, though Brian will see time in other countries, and we'll get to that someday. Right now, Brian can't seem to even get time in England. Before we talk too much about the Black Knight's origin, I do want to point out that this goes beyond just the flashback material. We made sure to include the material about what had happened to Captain Britain in the interim between his adventure with Spider-Man and showing up in the pages of Hulk UK. I'd wanted to include this because... In so many ways, it should not have been held over. I feel like we should have known a little bit more what was going on with Brian up front. One of the only reasons that Brian has played any interesting role in this story is because of the question of what happened to him. Ultimately, it's not that fascinating. It's interesting, 
but I don't believe it was worth the something like 40 issue wait to get the answers. Oh yeah, I definitely agree with all of that. And you can even like follow where something like that is where this was leading when you go back and think about all of the seeds and the serialized story of them trying to recover Brian Braddock. The payoff just isn't really worth the wait and how annoying it was that you were not getting answers over and over again. And I feel like one of the things that keeps changing are the details of Captain Britain's origin. Not so much the page-by-page, panel-by-panel fine details, but kind of the emotional vibe the book is supposed to carry keeps changing. Whether he was Merlin's champion or he was somebody, I don't know, just constantly finding himself battling technological villains. I feel like the point of view on Captain Britain is constantly shifting and they're trying to reconcile all of it with the version that we have now, this very Merlin Black Knight vibe. And I just don't think it's coming together the way they were hoping it would. I think that's even why they condensed so much of his backstory the way that they did and focused on things like the mystic and the interactions with Merlin. And I don't know, I guess fighting with the hawk is just kind of cool and they wanted to reuse that art. Sometimes the answer to these things is just as simple as that, honestly. It also makes me wonder if perhaps the lack of focus on the Captain America story is something to do with this side of the pond. Maybe the team over here at Marvel US weren't crazy about the light that Cap and Nick Fury were shown in, which were like a bumbling idiots. And perhaps the story sat wrong with everybody, like that they were hitchhiking through their entire military funeral. Yeah, absolutely. We definitely commented at the time that it was a very strange story, so I can see why they would want to perhaps pretend that one didn't happen. Um, Now, as far as the Black Knight origin stuff goes, talk to me about that. Have you read, like, the actual origin stuff of the Black Knight? How much do you know about that? Questions like how much do you know about it and how much have you read are so tricky because (laughs) growing up, You couldn't always get every story, and there were a lot of issues that weren't ever properly collected, and I had a lot of books that told me things I missed. I had a ton of Ohatmus, and they filled in the gaps that I didn't own. How much did I have of The Black Knight versus how much did I read? How You know, I knew enough, and I still know enough. I think Black Knight is a character who we didn't see a lot of use from by Brian Bendis and considering Brian Bendis's pen steered the Avengers for a really long time. It's hard for me as somebody who, okay, well, this is about to get a little strange, but rewind. The Avengers weren't really a hit until Brian Bendis's new Avengers. In fact, disassembled still really wasn't much of a hit. I mean, it, I mean, it was, but it wasn't. And the Avengers were constantly trying to figure out ways to cement themselves as a major player in the Marvel Universe. The Black Knight is from a time where the Avengers... The Avengers weren't quite as movie-friendly as they are now, and as much as I think there is a lot to be said about the Black Knight, he is certainly a Wondergorier side of the Avengers as opposed to a Thanosier side of the Avengers. And 
that seems to be something Marvel has moved away from. Now, the current run of Avengers by Jason Aaron sees a whole lot more sword and sorcery as it has seen the inclusion of Conan the Barbarian back into the pages of Marvel Comics. But it still goes to say that Black Knight is from a different era of the Avengers, an era of the Avengers that hasn't existed since before 2005. I really wasn't a hardcore comic collector till around that time, around the new X-Men, Astonishing X-Men, slot on She-Hulk sort of era. So in a lot of ways, characters like Jack of Hearts and Black Knight, they're missing from my Avengers vocabulary. I have a strong command of the Busick years because I'm a big fan of his, but characters like Black Knight, they do unfortunately represent a weak spot in my true Marvel reading. And as we've commented a number of times on this show, it can be so easy to misunderstand the significance of a character, an arc, or a series by looking at it in terms of a vacuum. We're talking about how we actually found what was going on with Brian, the secret that was in his head that he's been an amnesiac and running around the UK verse this whole time. We so we found that interesting, but but if it took 40 weeks to get to, I don't know how excited I would have been to get to that reveal. Hindsight and hardcover collections make everything kind of magical. So I guess, how much do I know about the Black Knight? Enough. But because he is not someone that Marvel has showcased in a good decade and a half, not enough. Fair enough. So does this properly represent his origin? I really couldn't tell you. I have to assume that this is in the same kind of vein as the Captain Britain origin. True enough for a, yeah, okay, but not really true. I feel like the Mythbusters might have a problem with this. Alton is going to talk about how this isn't exactly really a panna cotta. Yeah. And that is really the hard part about retcon and re-origining. And Captain Britain is such a great example of it because Wolverine's origin was a complete mystery. We had pieces, but they were very careful to reveal layer by layer. And they treated it like a very delicate flower. And Storm's origin was hyper-exposed, and everybody didn't realize how they connected to Storm till way later. They've put Jessica Jones in Spider-Man's origin, and Spider-Man's origin has been taken apart and put back together a million times, most notably by J. Michael Straczynski in his Amazing Spider-Man run. Daredevil's origin even has magical little hints to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. If you don't know, now you know. But at the end of the day... Captain Britain is a character whose origin, by being held overseas, was almost transmutable. And I have to assume Captain Britain's origin got a little bit more the shit end of the stick than the average character. But again, I have to assume this is the version of Black Knight's origin we need going forward. I'm very okay with the fact that Captain Britain's origin was retold in such a bastardized way that it ignores huge chunks of his canon because it'll never come up again. It's never going to come up again. It sucked. It wasn't well written. It was poorly handled. I don't blame the editors. I don't blame the writers. I don't blame the artists. I barely blame Marvel. They were trying to stay alive in an emerging, shifting market. They created art that they thought was going to keep them afloat. There was no expectation that this art was going to be looked at in a vacuum 40 years later. So the stories suck. They really don't belong in the annals of Marvel history, but they don't suck out of ill intent. They have aged poorly. The format was not suited to the character. Chris Claremont was overextended. The writers were paid subhuman wages. So were the artists. And at this point, they're giving us sort of this different version of Cap Britain's backstory since it's never going to really fucking matter. Yeah. 
I I mean, you're not wrong. You know, looking back over my notes again, I was a little more harsh at the beginning of the episode than perhaps is fair. I don't exactly, like, hate the Black Knight's origin. It actually kind of reminds me a lot of Captain Britain's origins. They both nearly die before God Merlin gives them their powers. Their power has something to do with King Arthur's court and, like, the reincarnated spirit of britain somehow or whatever plus there's one fight sequence that's a good knight with a sword on a winged horse versus a bad knight with an axe on a gargoyle and like that shit is my jam but it doesn't it makes the character a little clearer but it doesn't make the character any more sympathetic either in retrospect or in the current timeline that's for sure as for the explanation of cap's amnesia i I think what happened to him is sort of cool, and the next phase of the quest, as I believe Merlin puts it, uh, is going to be pretty interesting, but it's not ultimately worth the payoff. I certainly, you know, I said it before, I, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. Hey everyone, I'm Taryn, and this is Artist of the Atom Costume Corner. First off, I want to thank Nico and company for allowing me to have a spot on this podcast and to talk about one of my favorite comic series ever since I was a kid. I'm also a comic artist and I take quite a bit of inspiration from studying other character designs to see what works and what has been done before. So far, this has been a lot of fun seeing how members of the X-Men went through so many wardrobe changes and how that reflected their character and roles in the comics. So without further ado, I'll start this off by going over the first few costume designs for the one and only Cyclops. We all know Scott Summers from his blue and yellow accented wetsuit costume, but apparently he's gone through a few number of costume changes over the decades. His first appearance was a team-oriented head-to-toe blue and yellow training suit where the only distinguishing characteristic of his wardrobe was his optic visor. The blue tights with yellow torso, boots, and gloves were introduced by none other than Jack Kirby in the very first Uncanny X-Men in 1963. About 39 issues later, Cyclops finally gets his individualized look and it nods back to his original training outfit. Entirely blue with yellow accents, this recognizable costume pays homage to his beginnings as one of Xavier's mutant prodigies, and it will carry on over the years in future designs. He stands apart from the rest of the team as they get a special color treatment to their designs and new accessories. The fact that Cyclops retains the blue and yellow motif kinda shows that the creators want him to be the one who represents the first X-Men team, giving him the role of leadership not through status but by appearance as well. The curveball costume that I never expected to see was Eric the Red, which was introduced in X-Men issue 51. At first glance, it seems not safe for work, and it got me wondering what the heck artist Jim Steranko was thinking when he illustrated this design. Then again, this devilish S&M looking costume threw everyone in a loop, and no one would have suspected it was Scott Summers in the first place. During this run, he was attempting to infiltrate a villain's base of operations as an evildoer. The costume doesn't go without beneficial features, especially the bit where it redirects Scott's optic blast down through his gauntlets and shoots out through his hands, which is pretty badass. Despite the amount of bare skin showing, the design looks heavy and densely armored so Scott can move about easily and still take a hard hit or two. The costume shows up again later in X-Men issue 97, but instead, this time, it's worn by a Shi'ar warrior named Devon Shikari, who also uses Eric the Red as his moniker for some reason. 
This Eric the Red has absolutely no relation to Cyclops' original disguise, and it's a little bit identical, but for the most part they redesigned it to be a little bit more modest in some areas. There's absolutely no other explanation behind it at all, or the fact that it's being worn by someone else from a different species altogether. But it becomes a recurring disguise throughout the X-Men comics, uh, mostly used by Devon Shikari, and it's used at least once by Magneto. So I guess they just wanted to feel kinky for a moment or two, I guess. Needless to say, it's probably the most risky costume design I've ever seen on a male superhero, for that matter. We don't really get to see anything like that, as far as I'm aware, in other X-Men comics during this era. So far, Cyclops' iconic style has a modest start, and his signature look begins early on in his X-Men career. It's rather bland from the get-go, but the lack of pattern or insignia makes Cyclops stand apart with a costume that seems more practical than flashy. Except for Eric the Red, that's a totally contrasting costume. The fact that Cyclops' distinguishing accessory is his optic visor goes to show that his appearance was designed around his unique power. There really is nothing much else Cyclops needs to be added onto his design because everything he needs is in his killer gaze. I'm sorry, that was pretty awful. That was a terrible pun. I do kind of wish we got to see more of Eric the Red in action, let alone have him be brought back by Cyclops. For being so outlandish, I appreciate what Steranko did in making that suit appear so foreign, and it brings about a nice change of appearance for a character who is trying to break out of the mold of what superheroes would usually do. The fact that Cyclops is able to redirect his optic blast out of his hands is kind of weird in a way, because that technology is never brought up again for any of his other suits, as far as I'm aware. I get why they never brought back that feature to any other costumes, because Scott Summers is partly defined by his pain of not being able to view the world with his own eyes completely free from his mutant power. It's what makes him a mutant, and to take away that aspect would have opened doors for other mutants to be able to control their mutations as well, so I get it. So next time, I'll be picking up when the X-Men create X-Factor, and how that team aesthetic influences Cyclops' appearances up to the 90s. I'll also be covering the other original X-Men costume designs as well, so stick around for that too. You can find me uploading some X-Men art and other fun illustrations up on my Instagram account at TaranEnigma underscore art. That's T-A-R-Y-N-E-N-I-G-M-A underscore art. And be sure to check out my pencil work that I do for Kid Riot over at KidRiotComics.com. Okay, so, you know, it's really funny because I feel like I'm constantly defending some of the stuff we're including in this show, and in a weird way, this is the kind of finish line, other than stuff that's just growing painsy, like early wheezy on New Mutants or early wheezy on X-Factor. Woof. Whether it's either one of those, or it's some of the Marvel Comics Presents we're going to read along with some of the fanfare we're going to... Whether, you know, there's little things, but in so many ways, this is the last major binding element where i'm like we're gonna get to some incredible captain britain very soon and i can't wait to get there i want to thank taryn and gleema for coming on and giving us some really great insight into character study and costume design it was really great to get that input from them and i just want to say thanks welcome to the x's for podcast family and Kevo, until you're jamming out with your family, perhaps in some sort of contest, maybe full of champions, nah. where can everybody find you on the interlines? You're going to let that sit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
Uh, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Kevoreally, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. You can also find me on Facebook on the page for the show that Nico and I host, also on Cage Club, Husbands Talking More or Less, at Official HTML. You can also, also find a lot of the really super cool superhero stories that we have told over at KidRideComics.com. Nico, where can everyone find you? As always, you can find me all of those amazing places as well as now and again here on the network where me and my best buddy Chris take a look at the Now That's What I Call Music series. You can also check out some of the cool other shows we do here on Access for Podcast, like Thor. Very exciting. A little thwip thwip coming your way later this year as well. Don't forget to check out my Instagram, Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And we will see you guys soon. Woo!